My name is Kent Hughes, and if you could do me a favor today, I appreciated Chris's kind words on the video, uh, but my boys have reminded me throughout my career that I'm not a real doctor, that I'm just a psychologist. So if today, if you guys could just refer to me as Kent, and I'll refer to you as family, and I'll be much more comfortable, and that'll make my boys happy as well. Uh, when Chris called a few, a few weeks ago and asked me if I'd be willing to, to come and, and speak to you all this morning, I, I was just really grateful for the opportunity. I think it's, it's probably been two or three years the last time I sat down with anyone from one church uh, in, a, in a group setting. And at that time, I, I want to say there may have been about 20 or 30 folks who had been praying and working together, talking about, hey, we want to go and launch this, this mission in Clarksville, and we, see it, we have a vision. And uh, they were talking about small groups, and that's one of the reasons why I was there, because that's one of my passions is small groups. And it has just been exciting to watch from a distance what God has been doing. And I, can I just say that you all are the most dedicated Christians in Clarksville today. Um, this, this has got to be true. I mean, I, this actually feels good to me because it brings back memories of camp meeting. I don't know if any of you ever have been to a camp meeting in the South, but it's this weird religious thing that Southerners do when it's about 110 degrees and 100% humidity, and we go out into the woods at a place, and we put up a tent or a, a wooden structure, and we sit underneath it. And we sweat, and we sing, and then we sweat. And then they have, usually they have these fans that they, you know, and people are doing like this, it's great. It just reminds me of growing up in Dover, Tennessee, is where I grew up. And I remember going to camp meeting down in Dixon. So I'm at home. I, I hope, I'm very comfortable. I hope you're comfortable. And uh, we're going to have a good time uh, this morning. Chris, when he, when he called and asked me, he, he said, uh, we're doing this series called Trapped. And uh, he said, and the series is about, you know, our financial lives, money. If you have any knowledge of who I am, you know that I'm not the guy to come and talk about money. I do have one of my sons here today who wanted to come, and I think he's just going to come and make fun of me at lunch, but he did want to come, and he, would, he could tell you, I'm not the guy to talk about money. And that's the first thing when Chris said this. I thought, wow, I'm not sure about that. It, it reminded me when I got married about 20, almost 25 years ago this November. Uh, my wife, Teresa, was moving into the apartment that I had been living in for about four or five months prior to us getting married. And as we're, you know, we're getting stuff in and, you know, furniture and, you know, all the stuff that our families had given us because we didn't have any money <laughs> to purchase furniture. And she opens up this drawer and it, it was, a, you know, like probably our bedroom dresser. And she pulls this top drawer out and it's got envelopes in it. And the envelopes, the return address says Third National Bank in Nashville, Tennessee, Nolensville Road branch. And they were unopened. And there were about five of those. And she looks, she goes, what are these? And I said, I don't know. They, one, they come every month. I don't know what they are. Um, and she kinda, I saw this panic-stricken look on her face because she comes from a family that owns their own business. And she was a bookkeeper and accountant major in college. And so she opens it and realizes that these are the bank, monthly bank statements that banks obviously send out. I had no idea that they did that. And um, she started to kind of freak out. And it was one of our first, probably our second, because our first happened on the honeymoon. But our second big, uh, and I won't go into that story. That's a different story for a different message. But, but it was one of our, it was our second big moment that was tense. Because she was looking at me thinking, what in the world are you doing? And I told her, I said, well, there's a machine right down the road that has ATM on it. And every time I go there, the little screen tells me how much money I have in the bank. And it keeps giving me money. So I assume that we're okay. And her comment was, you realize, Kent, that that machine's not accurate. It's not up to date. And I thought, you know, but as soon as I don't have any money, won't it stop giving me money? 
And anyhow, you can go from there. That conversation lasted about three days. Needless to say, my ATM card privileges were revoked uh, by a greater authority. And so I have not had an ATM card since then. And so I'm not the guy to talk about money. So if you would today, as we close out this series on Trapped, this is not a message about money. This is a message more about attitude, about my stuff and my money. It's, it's not even a message about giving or spending or saving. I think we've already had those in this series. Uh, this is not even really a message about how much you have or don't have, because I think we've, we probably have a range in this room of, of life experiences in that area. This is more a message about your perspective about what you have and don't have. And so I'd like for you to kind of go with me if you're there to set it up. And I don't know if you can identify with me on this, but when it comes to this whole idea of, of stuff, money and stuff and the things that, that, we, that we need, the things that we have, the things we can purchase, I, I often feel trapped, as the series has been talking about, by these forces that, that seem to just kind of pull me in one direction. Um, I, I know what is true, and, and I know what I've read in here, and, I, and I've read most of my life. I, I've grown up in the church, so I've, I've been around the Bible a lot, so I've heard a lot of sermons, and I've, I've read a lot. I've been to a lot of Bible studies, and I, I know what's here, but I feel trapped. I feel pulled in a different direction, and it, and it seems to be coming within me and even sometimes from without. It just seems like there's internal and external powers that, that trap me. And so what I'd like to do today at the beginning of this is just share with you two forces, if you will, that I think trap us. Uh, one from the inside and one from without. And it begins, if you go all the way back, if, if you were to open your Bible and turn to page one, uh, there's a story that starts in the beginning. And God is doing some cool things in this moment, and he, he creates this beautiful place, a, a beautiful garden, has everything, trees and bushes, probably has beautiful strawberries. You know, things are never out of season. Uh, it's just a great place to live. And, and then he creates a guy, creates a man named Adam. Good, good situation. Adam's got a great place to live. Uh, but then, best thing he ever did, creates a woman. Adam, ecstatic. <laughs> it's a great thing. We won't go into all of that. But it was, so here we have these two people. By the way, they, were, they didn't have a lot of clothes. And they were happy. And it was perfect. And the temperature was perfect all the time. Um, it was just a great place to live. And, and the scriptures even imply that, that God would even come and hang out with them. Kind of just a, a great place to be. And, and that's where we pick up the story. And if you have a Bible, and it'll be on the screen as well. But in Genesis chapter 3, I want us to kind of pick the story up here as we kind of identify one of the ways we're trapped. Because I think we are trapped by our family line. Not the Hughes line, not the Edmondson line, not the Smith line, not the Jones line. But the, uh, the family of Eve line, if you will. And so let's pick up the story here. Uh, in, in chapter 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. So one day he asked the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, You must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Well, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, 
and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. There's a lot of things we could talk about from this, from this passage. Um, we could talk about some marital issues. Uh, we could talk about passivity. We could talk about temptation. We could talk about a lot of different things. But what I'd like to do is focus on one particular phrase. Now, and this phrase is where we're going to land in this first part. And here's what it is. She saw the tree was beautiful. And its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted it. She just wanted the wisdom that it would give her. I mean, isn't that kind of our story? I mean, it, it's there's almost like it's in our DNA. We typically want what we don't have. I mean, it just seems like there's this inner thing inside of us that draws us to that. I mean, Eve was approached by the serpent, by Satan, the enemy, in this perfect place. And, and, she, and he kind of questioned her contentment about where she was at. Um, how could she be happy if she couldn't have that? I mean, she was, I mean, her perspective was changed from all that God had given her to the one thing that he had withheld. And all of a sudden, she had to have it. It was a powerful, powerful shift. I mean, she, she was shifted from God's focus of her life to her own and this inner drive that she had. I mean, I don't know if that sounds familiar to you, but I think it's, it's true about, about us. I mean, how often has our attention been drawn away from the much that is ours to the little that maybe we don't have or that thing that we we believe we need it's that i don't know, it's that feeling inside of me that says i've got to have it if you i don't know if you've ever seen it i thought about bringing an apple and just setting it right there and using the apple but you know it's more than just an apple and then i mean it, it it could be anything it's that thing inside of me that says i've got to have it and and i think our desires can often be twisted because it's, it's a natural thing. I mean, I think we even have, as humans, a natural bent towards exploration and, and acquisition and, and power and rule and creation. Because we, we were created in the image of God. And so we do have this thing inside of us that says, let's go out and conquer and rule. And, and that's a good thing. But it can be so easily twisted and perverted. And it becomes self-centered and it becomes discontent. I, I guess for me, and this may sound little to you, but for me it's always been this thing of, if I've got any money in my wallet, give me about a day and it's gone. Um, which is probably why I didn't open up the little envelopes, because I think I probably knew what they were. I just didn't want to know. And so as long as there's green in the wallet, it, it's kind of like it's lunchtime, and I brought my lunch to the office, but I passed Wendy's on the way in. And I used to could eat Wendy's. I can't eat Wendy's now, but for other reasons. But, but when I could, it's like, you know... I love the way Wendy's tastes. And I smelled it on my way in. I've got my lunch, but, you know, or it's been a while since I've had Chick-fil-A. I love Chick-fil-A, you know. It's that, or, or I've had my lunch, and I'm sitting here, and it's time for dessert. And if you're a good Southerner, you always have to have dessert, you know, even if you're at work. And I'm thinking, boy, I would, I would love to have some chocolate. Now, I don't need to have the chocolate because I brought my apple or my orange, which my wife gave me, which that's supposed to be dessert. <laughs> um, she's from West Virginia, so you have to forgive her for that. Um, but I mean, that's just not dessert, right? Um, so I'm thinking chocolate. So I could get in my car, which is about 98 degrees right now and drive and spend about $5 in gasoline because of what I drive over to the store to get a candy bar. I think I will. And, 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 and you know, and it's not just enough to get the candy bar, you have to get the king size because everybody knows that the more chocolate, the better. And, and, I, and I'm not suggesting to you that that's sin. 
but, but it reflects this thing inside of me that just says, I've got to have it. Once I start thinking about it, once I see the tree, I, it's hard to get it out of my head, and, and I want it. Um, it's, it's just phrases like it's never enough. I think what's natural is to spend. What, what seems natural to us is to go and buy more. Um, what's not natural is this idea of wait and be patient. Um, you know, Chris's message last week flipped the list. I don't think that's natural. I think that's biblical, and I think that's something we should be working towards. But it doesn't at least feel natural to me. It, it would work if I did it, but it, what feels natural is to go and spend. I, and I would say just if you look in your life, whether it's in your marriages, the power that that kind of attitude can bring, the discontentment, greed, jealousy, resentment. Uh, I mean, it can, it can destroy marriages. Even and those of you that are parents and you've raised your children, let's say, up through the ages of, you know, 9, 10, you've seen it in your children, right? I mean, I, don't, I have three really cool guys that were my, my sons, and they're good, they're good men. Uh, my youngest is 17 now. But, you know, when they were born, they were very selfish. Just to be honest with you, I never had, none of my children, when they started speaking, started saying things like, no, Dad, I don't need that toy. I'm good to go. You don't need to buy me that. I didn't have any of my children say that. Um, you know, and, and, you, and you watch parents that are walking through Toys R Us. I love doing that now. I love to go over to Toys R Us and just watch the parents of the young kids because I'm not in that age anymore. You know, and they're dragging their kids through and the kids are grabbing stuff off the shelves. Going, I want that. I need that. Um, it's, just, it's just built in. And, and if, you're a, if, if you have teenagers, you know that even at, at this time of their life where they're developing those values of, am I going to manage this inner drive or is it going to manage me? Um, it's, a, it's a powerful thing. And, and I would even go so far as to say, look at our culture. This idea that I've, we've got to have this now. I mean, it's taking our economy, and, and I don't mean just this current moment. I mean, it's, it's 100 years worth of living to where we see the, the destructive power of this attitude that says, I've got to have this. King Solomon wrote a couple of books in the Old Testament. They're called wisdom literature, just a bunch of wise sayings. And then one book in Ecclesiastes, he, he kind of describes his own journey. And how he went and explored pretty much everything there was to explore. And then he kind of gives his final thoughts on it. But there's a one little verse I love in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 where he's kind of describing the attitude of the day. And, and this is what he says. A party gives laughter, wine gives happiness, and money gives everything else. I, I think we could have written that today. We could probably could have put that on a billboard today. I think we have this idea that if we throw money at it, it will solve everything. And so... There's this trap that's in us. And I would argue at, at some level, and I'm not a, a, a physicist, but it's almost in our DNA that, that says, I've got to have it. So that's one of the forces, I think, that traps us. But the second thing is I think we are trapped by our cultural values of the day. You and I live in a culture, and we cannot escape its influence. Now, I can resist it, and I can make my own decisions, but I can't ignore the fact that this is where I was born and raised, and it affects me. And I, I would say, I heard an author a few years ago describe our culture as the free agency era. It's, it's, that, it's, the, it's described as an era where individual achievement is more important than, say, community. Individual achievement and success is more important than even relationship, long-term relationship. It, it, it even sometimes cancels out loyalty. Um, and, it's, and it's a part of who we are. It's a part of our culture. Uh, we are more mobile than we've ever been. Uh, we have the ability to, to go wherever we want to go. And we can do it relatively quickly. And so it allows us to pursue this value of, of individual achievement. 
Um, I would say that maybe the American dream could almost be described now as what's best for me is what's best for my family. And sometimes that's true. Uh, we can't argue that. Sometimes that fits. But a lot of times, if you, if you look, that we, what's best for me may not always be what's best for my family or for my community. And I would say even the last couple of weeks, if you've, I think it was highlighted in the NBA. And I don't have a problem with players playing wherever they want to play. That's fine. That's not the issue. But, I mean, wasn't it amazing, the idea that what's, I'm going to make decisions solely on what's best for me? And, and I'm not even criticizing an individual or anything. But, I mean, the fact that we put it on a show and that we highlighted it and we were talking about it for weeks. I mean, months we've been talking about this. And it, it's just kind of our cultural value. I'm not accusing you that that's your value or even mine, but it's the culture that we live in. It's the idea of these slogans that you hear. Uh, you need cash tomorrow? Come to us. <laughs> or I love the one that says, it's my money. I want it now. <laughs> you know, and they're screaming out the window. It's like, wow, that's, it's, this, it's this value that we have. The old Burger King thing, the have it your way. I mean, that has pervaded everything about our lives. You can have it your way. And you can have it pretty quickly. I love the one I heard this past week. We make the car that makes you. (laughs) I hope that's really not true because the car that I'm driving really screams out old man. Um, And and it's just, I really don't like that look. So I really hope that's not true. Money is essential. Money's necessary, so money is not the evil here. And even having things, I'm not suggesting to you that having a nice car, a nice house, or nice clothes, or whatever, that's not evil. That, that's not it. It's, it's my perspective about what I have and what I don't have that can lead to a destructive life. We are just bombarded in this culture by messages that you can and should have whatever you need. That it, it, It's your right and, and so not only do I have this inner drive going, we have this cultural value system bombarding me all the time. Every web page, every pop-up, every billboard, every storefront, it's, it's just everywhere saying you should and you can. Um, I think even, I'm, I'm struck at even how holidays in the United States, um, even just this past month, 4th of July, celebrating our nation's independence. Do you notice in the paper there was, in my mind, there was, it looked like there, were, there was less about the holiday and more about the 4th of July sales. It, it, I lo- we even have a concept now called Christmas in July. Now, I don't think any of you all put up trees and celebrated Christmas. I, didn't, I don't think that the church here, I don't think at one church you all just, you know, celebrated Christmas. But, there, but it was all about getting you and I into the store because there's things that we need there. Um, I, I, I challenge you this November, the week of Thanksgiving, to just... Watch the national news, starting from Monday all the way through. And I guarantee you, we will see more stories and more articles about Black Friday than we will about Thanksgiving Thursday. In fact, my experience is and, and that Thursday, at least for me, is you know to say thanks, eat a lot, and watch football. <laughs> but... Um, But it looks like for a lot of our culture, it's really about getting ready to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and get in line for the next best thing. And and again, if you've done that this year, I'm not criticizing you. I'm just saying recognize our culture and the force and the value. Is there anyone out there advertising, be where you are? And I'll try to keep this on my face here as well. Uh, Is there anybody saying, just, hey, Kent, be where you are? 
You know, I haven't heard that advertisement yet saying, Ah, oh, Kent, you're good to go, man. Just, you don't need to come out and buy anymore. Uh, just be content with what you have. I, I don't hear that message anywhere coming out. And it's interesting to me, you know, what, what, what have been the results of these two forces, if you will, and especially our cultural force? A couple of authors wrote a book called Refrigerator Rights, and they suggest that this emphasis on individualism, on individual achievement and success has impacted, and we've had a loss of refrigerator rights. I have a really small ear. That's the problem. Um, can you, you can still hear me? Everybody wave? Oh, thank you, sir. Um, and, and let me describe refrigerator rights for you. If I had a refrigerator right here, and it was representing yours, how many people in your life can just walk into your home, walk up to the refrigerator, open it up, grab a drink, and shut it, or grab some food, get it out, go to the microwave, and never ask? They just walk right in and do it. Or, or, in, in the other, or flip it a little bit. How many people can you do that to? The idea that you could just walk into their house and don't ask. You just go up, open, get whatever you want out, and help yourself. I mean, that's a sign of intimacy, if you will. I mean, that's a sign that we have a really close relationship when you do that. And these authors suggest that this, the value of individualism has hindered that and hurt that in our culture. That, Well, I mean, questions like this. How many people see you without your makeup? Or unshaven, or how many people in your life actually hear you talk in that unguarded way, like you do at home? You know, they hear you express what you're really feeling. Um, how many people do you talk to at a really deep, intimate level? I mean, how many people grant you those refrigerator rights? And, and I think our cultural value system has damaged that to this degree. This this drive towards individual achievement. Um, I, it hurts even at a relational level. And, and another result that I see in my profession, as these authors are talking about it from our, a societal issue, but what I see is when you read the research about the number of complaints and the type of complaints that we bring to our doctors, more and more it's about chronic stress, anxiety, and depression. We have more deaths today than ever before related to chronic stress. And it seems like that, that more and more there is a significant gap between our personal and career achievement and our inner peace and contentment. That, that this, this drive and this cultural value that says achieve, achieve, acquire, this attitude is a significant gap now between people that are saying, yeah, I'm at peace. I, I'm, I, I am content. There, it's, a, it's a chasm. It's a grand canyon between those. And... I would like to just ask you, so, you know, I think these are the traps that we face. What's the solution? I mean, how do we break free from these, these traps? I guess the question I would throw out to you today is, what if the path, and, and it's just a what if, okay? And, and, and I want you to hang with me here for a minute because I've, I've had some issues at home. With, I threw out some of the stuff to my wife and some colleagues, and, and we kind of, this is where it's going to get tough for just a minute, okay, as, we, as I throw out to you a possible solution because I don't think it's a part of our culture. But what if the path to inner peace and contentment is not through acquiring or getting to the next level or getting to the next job or, or getting to... What if the path is not? What if the path is just to be where you are? Yeah, and that's what I want us to leave with today, this idea of be where you are. In other words, contentment. And I, and I, I wish we had time and I could ask everyone here, what do you think of when I say the word contentment? 
Because I think sometimes it even has a negative connotation in our culture. Some people hear complacency or, well, you should just don't care about anything. But there's a different definition. Uh, in the dictionary, the Heritage Dictionary, uh, it, this definition, I like this definition. Contentment means desiring no more than one has. I, I like that. I think it's interesting that the word content comes between the words contempt and contention. I thought that was curious, that on both sides of the word contentment is, is the strife and struggling. Um, it's not about what you have or you don't have. That's not what today is about. But it is about your perspective about what you have and what you don't have. Can, I don't think contentment means that I can't go work hard to try to improve my life. That, that's not what we're talking about. But what is my attitude while I'm working hard to improve my life? You know, there's a lot of folks that don't even live today because they're working so hard for what they envision tomorrow to be, of where I'm going to be and what we'll have, and I will feel content. In our culture, a lot of times we call that retirement. I mean, there are so many ads advertising, bombarding us today that when you get to that place, you'll be content because you'll have this and this and this in place. And the reality is, it may be really good to have some of those things in place, and I would encourage you to be wise and invest and, uh, and save. But if I think that's going to make me content, I've been misled. I've been misled by this inner drive that Eve had and that we have, but also by our cultural values. I, I guess I would give you this example, and, and, and let me just tell you that this is something I'm struggling with. Maybe because I'm 47, and I'm getting to that, you know, I'd like to say it's midlife, but it's, it may be moving past midlife a little bit. But I, I struggle. I'm not telling you that I've, I've mastered this value. Um, we, we drive a, I drive an old vehicle. Uh, my wife didn't let me drive today because she didn't want me to, you know, to embarrass myself in front of you all. But I drive a 1996 Lincoln Town Car that was given to me by my in-laws. It's actually the second Lincoln Town Car they gave me. The first one was a 1984. We blew that one up. Um, and then this one, and, and, I, and I love my in-laws, but they just wore the fool out of this car before they gave it to us. So when we got it, it, you know, anyhow, if you were to be behind me at a stoplight, uh, first let me just say, if you see a Lincoln Town car champagne color, don't get behind it. Because when I push the gas, boom, blue smoke comes out the back because I'm burning oil more than I'm burning gas. Uh, if you're behind me on the interstate, get over into the left lane and pass. Because randomly, the transmission will slip a little bit like this, and, and I'll drop down to about 40 miles an hour, and I just kind of ease off, you know, it'll come back, it'll come, come on baby, it'll come, and then back up to 70, we're good to go. And it just floats along, if you've ever been in one of those old cars, they don't have a tight suspension, they float. So you really have no control over where you're going. It's just a great ride. Um, now, let me be honest, for the last year or so, I have been looking to replace our beloved town car. I would even go so far as to say, I think I need to replace it. So we're looking for a little pickup truck that kind of fits our budget and based on our value system. And so I, I'm, I'm looking for that. But the challenge is, every day when I drive to work and I see the F-150 King Ranch over here, you know, and the Honda Pilot over here, which I would really love to have, um, I have to choose my attitude and my perspective. I could go get one of those. I think, I think the dealerships would be more than happy to sell me one. And I'm not, I'm not opposed to people buying vehicles. But what is my attitude? I have to check my thoughts every day. And I have to choose to be content while we're looking. Because I really do believe that someday I'm going to find that little pickup truck for the right amount of money. And 
I'm going to just leave the town car on the side of the road. <laughs> and it's just going to leave there, and then somebody's going to have to come pick it up and take it over to Queen City Metal and get some cash for it. Um, but in the meantime, what's my attitude? It's not about what you drive. It's not about where you live. It's not about what I have and don't have. It's about what is my perspective on that. I have to choose. And so toward the end of this, I guess what I'd like to say is how do we get out of this? How do we get out of this trap? In the, in the book of Philippians, Paul is writing. And he's finishing the letter to this church. And Paul, if you know anything about Paul, he was a great missionary, traveled around. Paul had a lot of highs and a lot of lows. What he says here, and I would like for you just to kind of follow along with me. In uh, chapter 4, verse 8 through 15, he's finishing his letter to them. And he says, and now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. And he gives them a bit of instruction. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. We could probably just stop right there. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all that you've learned and received from me. Everything you heard from me and saw me doing, then the God of peace will be with you. That, that's, I love that. And then he, he transitions, and he a little self-disclosure here, because these are the people that have been trying to love on him, been trying to take care of him financially. And so he goes on to say, How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you've always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need. This is, hear this. And this is a guy that was shipwrecked, uh, stoned almost to death. Uh, he's been in front of kings. He's, he's, just, he's had this and this throughout his adult life. But listen to what he says. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. I have learned how to be content. And he goes on to say, For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. And then he gives them a guarantee. And I love this guarantee. And this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. I think all our lives, at least in my, my life, I've had this inner and external force telling me that once I get all of those things, I'll be content. That is when you'll have peace. That is when you'll have made it. And, and I'm wondering if, if Paul is, is challenging us today to think just the opposite. What if, what if contentment comes first? What if I learn how to be content, at peace, to be where I am, and then I work hard, and I, and I, because God created work, and so work's not bad, and I try to improve my life. And if any of these other things come along, those are just blessings here, and they'll be great. But they won't be the source of my contentment. My contentment will happen before I ever get there. It's a very, very different way of thinking. And I, I guess I would just challenge you, how hard does that sound? And how did Paul do that? I would say, I think Paul had one key secret for us to hold on to today. He kept God's perspective on his stuff. Instead of looking through his own eyes at what he had and didn't have, he always tried to see, how does God see my life? For you and I, my Lincoln Town car, or my kitchen that needs to be replaced, or whatever it might be. What does God say about my stuff? Whatever it is I have or don't have. Not what I say, and not even what you say. And, and you don't need to come to me to ask me what I think about your stuff. 
I need to know what does God say about my stuff? Because what I think is a need might be in his eyes a want. Not a bad thing, but it may just be a want. And he may say, you know, Ken, I'm going to take care of all your needs. You just keep working hard and being obedient. And that is very counterculture. I would even say I think it's counterintuitive because what I feel inside is, no, I need to have this, 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 then I'll be okay. And I would challenge you today, are you willing to just be where you are? Are you willing just to, to be there and be with the people that are there with you? You know, um, do life together. I, it's okay to pursue a career. It's okay to pursue degrees and education. I, that's not the point. What's your perspective while you do that? And don't ignore the people around you. The one thing I love about your church is you do small groups. Join a group. Do life together. Struggle through this material together. I think this is a real challenge for us to believe. And then I would say, if I'm going to figure out what God's perspective is, I've got to spend some time here, quiet, turn down the noise of the culture, and just focus on what does he say about what I have and what I don't have. It's my prayer that that we would grow here and the church where I attend and all over Clarksville into a gathering of believers that have figured it out. And as Paul said, have learned how to be content with whatever we have and get out of the trap that seems to be within us and that seems to be coming from our culture. Let me just pray for us. Father, uh, I love you very, very much. And I thank you so much that uh, you are a God with glorious riches, as Paul said. And you are a God that can meet all my needs. God, help me at times when I forget that, when I lose sight, when I follow that inner drive or I give in to the message of my culture. And Father, I pray for the folks in this room that you would strengthen them and you would embolden them and you would give them the courage to seek contentment by your definition. As they work hard, as they serve this community, as they follow you, God, I would ask that you would give them the attitude of contentment, a a peace that has nothing to do with what they have and what they don't have. And then at the end of every day, Father, we truly could close our eyes and just say, thank you. And Father, I pray for that one person or two that maybe today this is really difficult because they're in a bad spot. And finances are just bad. The job is bad. There, there's nothing there. God, I would ask that you would come in with your peace and that you would bring people around them to encourage them and, can, and remind them that you are a God of glorious riches and you will meet the need. We love you and we praise you for who you are today. And we serve you not because of what you do for us, but because of who you are in your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.